Well, brothers and sisters, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Before I read this morning the parable of the mustard seed, verse 31 and 32, let's ask our Lord's blessing on us. Let's pray together. Blessed Heavenly Father, we bow in the name of Christ our Lord before you. It's Lord, because of him we have peace with you, and we are your sons and daughters. Now, Father, we come this morning to the preaching of the word, and we ask, Lord, that you would be the great teacher, that you would send your spirit to take this word that we hear audibly with our ears, and you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, that you would remove any personal barriers any of us may have to its truth. It may be obscure at first, Lord, being the analogy of a mustard seed, but Lord, make known to us the great gospel truth of the kingdom that is in this parable. We pray that you would remove any barrier, that you would bring great light, and that you would make application to each and every one of us here this morning concerning the glory and the greatness of your kingdom. So, Lord, come and bless your own name in our midst and to each and every one of us. Bless your word. Bless your church. And, Lord, continue this saving work even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, beloved, hear the word of the Lord. He, being Jesus, presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is a smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Most of us have heard some sermons or at least one sermon addressing the mustard seed. It's a common passage of scripture whenever the preacher wants to talk about things that seem insignificant and in the drive up here this morning out of the nowhere the thought came to my mind that this evening we'll be I'll be meeting with other teaching elders and ruling elders and other uh, people interested in the consummation and the a confederation of Christ Reformed Presbyterian Church. And I thought, providentially, this was not planned. This sermon was not planned to go along with what I think is a perfect application to the parable itself. But yet this is what God had planned. And so I shall be making reference from time to time of this passage of scripture 
to what is happening this evening and hopefully what God will do in the future. Now, beloved, a parable is something, it's a, it's a worldly illustration. I don't mean that in a sinful sense. It's a, it's, Jesus takes those common events that they were familiar with and he uses them to drive a spiritual principle, a spiritual truth home to their hearts. These were known um, circumstances. They would have been very familiar to all of his listeners as they sat by the shoreside in Galilee and listened to this great teacher teach them on the kingdom of heaven. As we have already learned that as the the Son of Man goes about sowing the seeds of the kingdom of heaven. Only those who receive that seed, that good soil, and produce fruit and more fruit and even great fruit, only they should be considered as the true sons and daughters of the kingdom. That there would not be any mistake, any confusion, any misunderstanding about who are the true citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Those who are fruitful, they are the true citizens of this heavenly kingdom. The other parable taught us that this kingdom is always under assault. This kingdom is a mixed kingdom. It is both true and righteous, and yet it is filled with false sons and daughters. And Satan is always scheming on how to cause the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom, to stumble in their relationship, in their experience as they serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he does his best to tempt, to influence, and to cause the church to stumble in this world. And that's going to be ongoing until the consummation, until Jesus comes back and ends everything and brings all of what we now know, the history of man, into consummation and eternity begins. Don't be surprised. I know this body, this particular church, has faced many obstacles, but don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if we face several more along the way. That the Lord will test his, to his children for the sake of the children, for the sake of its citizens, that we would be tried and that we would be tested and we would be put to the test so that the true sons and daughters of the kingdom might shine bright in this kingdom. Praise God. Nothing tested, well, is worth anything. Everything that's been tested, everything that's been tried, everything that's been proven, that's valuable. And we must be tested, and we must be tested from time to time. None of us, I hope, would, would rest upon that test that we faced years ago. And we could just, we passed with flying colors, so to speak, and, and we would always look back and say, well, we passed that test. Yes, but what about today? What about the tests that are coming now or tomorrow? Will we pass those? 
Now our Lord brings to us a parable that addresses the expanse of the kingdom. If there are only going to be a few that are the true sons and daughters of the kingdom and that kingdom is going to constantly be under assault, you might think, my, it doesn't have much of a future. And Jesus in his infinite wisdom is correcting that possible idea in the hearers that, well, if this is what the kingdom is already, there certainly can't be a glorious end to it. And so as we look at the parable this morning, I wish to bring to you three points. Uh, Nothing profound at all at first is going to be. The first point I want to make to you is a probing question. Point number two is going to be an interesting comparison. And then point number three is going to be a current reminder for us all this morning. Point number one, a probing question. Two, an interesting comparison. And three, a current reminder or application. Now let's look at the probing question. In Matthew, he doesn't bring it out as clearly as Mark and Luke do in their uh, recording of Jesus's teaching. Matthew simply puts in there, he presented another parable to them. He laid it before them. But Matthew and Mark point out that Jesus does something very interesting at the opening up of this parable. Remember, this is all happening in one sitting. This is all one experience as Jesus has moved from the parable of the sower to the parable of the wheat and the tares and now to the parable of the mustard seed. that Mark and Luke address that Jesus asked a question. Turn, let's put our eyes on it for reference sake. Mark 4. Mark 4, chapter 30. And this, and he being Jesus said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we represent it? Now that's the question Jesus asked and notice the question itself. How shall we? Now Jesus didn't ask how shall you? No, he includes himself in this, which is interesting. It's probing. There is a catechetical feel to this to this teaching of this parable, Jesus is asking a question. He's probing them. The design of the question, at least in my mind, is for the hearer to examine themselves. It's to kind of search out within them the answer. How would you answer the question? What have you just heard? In, the, in what you have just learned currently about the kingdom of God, how shall we now compare the kingdom of heaven? What shall we liken it to? Yeah, our Lord asked this question and 
those standing by the Sea of Galilee now must ponder, how would I answer the question? How would you answer the question this morning? As you hear uh, by faith what the, the, these words recorded in Scripture, how would you address, how would you, uh, how would you answer the question? And you have to give it some thought. You have to think about it. You'd have to spend some time pondering it. I mean, you just wouldn't want to just openly burst out an answer. I mean, you might look like you didn't listen. But you would ponder that and you would think about it. I mean, particularly if you were serious. You, you, and I'm sure there, you know, I'm sure that we would all say something a little differently, but at the same time, there would be a lot of continuity in our answer. It seems to me that design is for them to begin to search themselves. Remember this audience, they're Jews. Remember what Paul said about the Jews and the advantage the Jews had over the Gentiles at this time was that to them had been given the oracles of God. They had been given the revelation of God. They have had in their possession, if you will, the revelation of the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God is a primary lesson of this whole scripture. They would need to recall, if you will, not just the teaching of that moment that Jesus was giving to them, but they would need to recall the word of God. They would need to go back and remember their elementary days and remember their school days and remember their synagogue meetings and think about how should I answer this question about the kingdom? How shall I compare it? What shall I compare it to? Maybe now even your own mind is racing those Old Testament passages and you're thinking about the kingdom of heaven, rightly so. You should. That's the purpose of the question. Search yourselves. How well are you familiar with the kingdom of God in the word of God? How well are you familiar with this great truth of the kingdom and are you mature in it? Are you still a babe in it? Well, let's look at um, two places of Scripture. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 4. Well, before 4, let's, let's, let's go to chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to read this lengthy text. Uh, you can make a note of it and spend time this afternoon meditating and resting in the Lord and visiting this text and pondering it for yourself. But it's the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had about the kingdoms of the world at that time. And in this vision, there was a statue and this statue was made of mixed materials and Daniel comes and he's going to give this interpretation, if you will, of this 
vision. Now look at verse 44. You have, well, back up, you have the interpretation there, verse 36 through 38, uh, the Babylon being the first kingdom. Verse 39, addressing the Medo-Persia kingdom and Greece. Uh, verses 40 through 43 represent the Roman Empire and uh, Babylon being the greatest, uh, the Medes and Persians and the Grecian Empire being the second greatest and Rome being the least of the three in glory. But there's another kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar had in his vision in verse 44 says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people and it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms and it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold and the great God has made known to the king that what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. And of course, this was a foretelling of the kingdom of God that Christ would bring into this reality in his coming into the world. And that's why Jesus, Matthew records Jesus saying when he went out to preach, he said, know this, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. When you see the son of man casting out devils by the finger of God, know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying, it's arrived. It's been foreshadowed. It's been prophesied. It, there have been tokens of it along the way. And now it's here. What has been prophesied is here. The king has arrived. And with him, so has the kingdom of God. Well, look over at Daniel 4. And you can see that even in Old Testament prophecy, trees were likened unto kingdoms. Trees were likened unto kingdoms. Verse 10, he says, now these were the visions. That is, now Nebuchadnezzar has another vision. And he'll have to call Daniel to come and help him with this vision. But my point being in that, here are these Jews listening to the teaching of Jesus on the kingdom of God, and they've been asked a question. Well, what will you liken this kingdom unto? And Daniel's already prophesied that the least glory, a rock cut without hands, will destroy these great empires. It'll put an end to what we know as these, these the glory of men, if you will. It's not that nations are inherently a problem. No, Jesus has sent his disciples out, right, to go disciple the nations. The problem isn't nationhood. The problem is that when men build nations unto themselves and unto their own name and glory, that's the issue, idolatry. 
Well, it says there in verse 10, it says, Now these are were the vision in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great, and the tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was in it was food for all the beasts of the field, found shade under it, the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. And that's all I want to read out of that text. The point being is that what Jesus brings to our to their attention and our attention is that the kingdom of God is also likened not initially unto a great tree that reaches the heavens. No. Jesus now moves from his probing question to them now to an interesting comparison. This is probably staggering to the mind of his own hearers when he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed or a grain of mustard, a grain, a single grain, which a man took and sowed in his field. I mean, an interesting comparison here that Jesus starts not with a great tree. He starts by comparing the kingdom of heaven unto a very tiny seed, a herb seed, about the size of a pinhead. And in fact, others point out, and even Jesus does here in verse 33, that, that this particular seed is smaller than all the other seeds. That these seeds, in comparison to this herbal garden, not all seeds, the seeds comparable to this illustration, it's the least of them all. It's the smallest of them all, which they would have known and fully accepted this proverbial statement that of smallness of being insignificant. In fact, it is a known fact that during this time and even today that it's not uncommon for someone to make a proverbial statement as small as a mustard seed. You're about as big as a mustard seed, boy. And that's how, you, you know what that means? That means it's a, it's a little fella. You know, you, you got little bitty fellas trying to be big fellas. And you can look at them and you can say, son, you're about the size of a grasshopper. We talk in terms of like that. We use terminology like that to, to determine smallness, right? I mean, we all know what we mean when you hear that. You're like, that boy's, that boy's about this small. He's insignificant. And this is what Jesus does here, which had to astound the hearers, and it definitely had to astound his disciples, the least of the seeds is what Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven. It's not impressive. In fact, there's nothing impressive about it. It's not just that it's not impressive. It's just like it's insignificant. But notice what he goes on to say. Notice how he moves in the illustration. He says, it's like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. 
It has a purpose. There's the expectation. As the man goes to sow this herb seed, the expectation is that it will blossom and it will grow. But not only that, that this particular plant grows to be the greatest of all of the other herbs. And that's what he says here. He says, this is smaller than the other seeds, but when it's fully grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. And there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of, let's see, how would I put this in a pleasant way? There is just a lot of uh, evangelical uh, quibbling about, is it a tree? Is it a large bush? That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not to give us a lesson on botany or plants. The point of the parable is to drive home the truth that the kingdom of heaven is very, starts out insignificant. Unimpressed. It's just unimpressive. And but Jesus creates this expectation in his lesson that what is what starts out as small and insignificant and unimpressive will be the greatest of all in the end. Not just great. Notice what it says. Larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. The greatest of all. There will be no other kingdom greater than this kingdom. That's the point that Jesus makes. It's a, it, it's a lesson, if you will, uh, not just from the least uh, to the greatest, but it's that which is insignificant. Nobody, you know, you, you drop a handful of mustard seeds, so what, you pick up, you, it's, not, it's no big deal. You can pick up thousands of mustard seeds in one handful. It's just, when we, we view things that are insignificant, like things that are cheap, things that are throw, things you throw away, right? They're not impressive. They're, if, something, if something cheap you know, particularly most of the stuff that you can buy at Walmart, it breaks or something. And, 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 you know, so what? You can just go buy, spend another dollar and get another one. That's the, seems to be the idea that Jesus is using to help his, his hearers ponder the depth of their own hearts about the kingdom of heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, like them, you and I have thoughts about the kingdom of heaven. We have ideas about it. We have ideas to its depth, its breadth, its glory, its power, its future, its current situation. And some of us may wring our hands when we watch the news or when we listen to certain political podcasts. We wring our hands and we wonder, what's becoming of the kingdom of heaven? And this parable teaches us that there is a glorious future and plan mapped out for the kingdom of heaven.
the kingdom of God, and we're a part of that kingdom by membership, by profession, by association, by the fellowship we have with the king of that kingdom and that fellowship and communion that he has with us. Because it's not one-sided, is it? It's mutual. We fellowship and love him. He fellowships and loves us. And he reminds us of the depth and the strength of that love. And he holds on to us. And that encourages us to love him back and to keep walking in his commandments, demonstrating outwardly, we love you, Lord. And we fail and we are weak and pitiful at times, but we love you. We get up, we, we dust ourselves off. We receive the encouragement of our brothers and sisters to keep going and we keep going and we persevere because your spirit is in us and there's a glorious future for the kingdom of heaven, even on the earth. It had to excite those who understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Remember, there was a judicial blindness to, that, that has happened to the crowd that followed Jesus. It was a large crowd. I mean, remember Jesus, it was a large, imposing crowd that pressed upon him so much that he had to back away and get into a boat, step off the shore so that he might address this large crowd. And there was, as Jesus announced earlier in the chapter, what this judicial blindness that had happened to them because they really were not there to love God or love their neighbor. They weren't there to really learn about the kingdom of God. They were only there for the novelty of it, for many sundry other reasons rather than it being the right reason. They were there for their own purposes and there was a blindness just blindness that God had turned them over to and they couldn't understand these parables of the kingdom they couldn't make the connections but the ones who could notice how excited they would have to be to hear that what starts out so small and insignificant has such a great future that had to excite them. Oh, they couldn't see it, right? It's like planting the seed in the soil. I mean, you don't see it growing. You don't see that small seed breaking open and dying to itself and putting roots and shoots into the ground so that a stalk may come up from it, but it's happening. It's happening. It's taking place. It's imperceptible, if you will, to the eye. You, can't, you don't measure it. You just can't look at it and go, okay, we're, mm, this is where we are. No, you just, it's just, it just, one day you walk out to your garden and you see these little green shoots. You're like, hey, hey, we got something. It's like the kingdom of God. It's like the kingdom of God in you. There are Moments when you think the kingdom of God is imperceptible in you. And then God's love is poured out and he shows you to encourage you. No, it's there. 
Jesus uses this illustration of this mustard seed to talk about faith. And he says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this great mountain to go plunge itself into the sea and it will obey you. Brothers and sisters, listen to what Jesus is saying. That this kingdom is arrived. That it's here. That its king has been established and set up. I mean, he is coming. He's demonstrating his, he's already withstood the trials of Satan. Adam failed. Christ succeeded. He's demonstrating his power not only over Satan and his temptations, but he begins to exercise the demons, if you will. He begins casting them out of people. He begins demonstrating that he has the power over the agents of darkness. He has the power over diseases. There's no disease that Jesus cannot heal. There's no bodily infirmity. There's no broken bone. There's no heart condition. There's no cancer. There's nothing that Jesus cannot address, deal with, speak to, heal, cure, and, 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 and heal, let's see, and renew better than new. There's nothing. He demonstrates he's the original, that all things were made through him and by him and for him, and he can just cast out blindness. He can unplug deaf ears. He can even take a missus who's been suffering greatly for decades, spending her wealth and fortune trying to heal herself. And he can speak to her and heal her. That's Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is that this kingdom is so, is perceived to be so insignificant. It's a mistake. But it's going to grow into a tree it is believed that a man on a horse could not even look over a mustard tree. That's the tradition that these trees would grow and that a man sitting on a horse could not see over the top of the tree. So much so as we read Daniel chapter 4 that Jesus uses a similar terminology of the glory of that kingdom to speak of this kingdom when he says so the birds of heaven are the birds of the air come and nest in its branches it's not just big enough for the birds to come and light in it it's big enough for them to nest in it to dwell there for it to cast its shade and find refreshment and rest there well those that's the parable. Let's now spend some time bringing this parable to
to a current application or reminder for us. What does it mean for us? We're not in the first century. We have, I believe, as a greater blessing because all of us probably have a Bible in our hands. We've all sat under some teaching, some form. I mean, we understand something about the kingdom of God. We are prepared to hear and listen to a sermon like this one this morning. But what does it mean to me? What does this parable do for me? Well, first, first, it's a reminder that Jesus takes the, that God, and of course in Christ, takes the insignificant things in life and make them great. Now, I, I started this in my notes, and, and it, it would have been a five-hour sermon. I couldn't stand to listen to myself for five hours. I know you could not stand to hear me for five hours, but you could go all the way back to creation itself. How does God reveal himself in small parts, parts and pieces? Even in creation. He could have created this world Fully mature, fully inhabited, full cities, roads, streets, uh, governments. He could have created everything immediate by just speaking it. That was not beyond his power to do so. But what did he choose to do? To reveal himself to all who would come to the scriptures and read in faith that he took in steps and parts and pieces and in six days made the heaven and the earth. And when he stepped back, look what he had created. Started with light. Let there be light. Oh, the theological implications of light. Think about it. We could be reminded of the garden itself. That he had, in his infinite wisdom, chosen to create a paradise for man to live in where his happiness would be ensured and from there, he would go out and carry out the cultural commission or dominion mandate. I did a little play on words there because I wanted to connect the cultural mandate commission with the great commission to go into the nations and make disciples of them. Seems to me to be very similar and I think important. But nevertheless, this, this insig- look, Adam and Eve, he didn't even, you know, create a tribe. He started with one, created out of his rib a woman, a helpmeet for, uh, uh, for his help. And then they were to do what? Go out into the world and be fruitful and multiply. I mean, look how... I, Our Lord loves small things growing into big things, doesn't he? From one to two, from two to as many as possible. Out of that came the families of the earth, the nations, if you will. 
Well, and we know what happened. We have those three epic failures in those first 11 chapters of Genesis, the failure of, well, Adam eating of the fruit. And then we have the failure of the whole human race, except for eight at that point, and God flooded the earth. And then we have that third failure of the Tower of Babel. Again, the creating of a city in the glory and name of man, a kingdom that God put to nothing. So he decided to do what? To bless the whole earth through another person named Abraham. Now, you might think Abraham and your, I mean, I know that you are Bible students, don't get me wrong, but you know, I mean, certainly I think the Lord would call some strapping young 25, 26, 30-ish maybe young man. I mean, he's got a father, you know, the nations, right? He's, nations are going to come. I mean, he needs to be strong, young, vigorous, vibrant. And certainly his wife would be similar. That's not the case. He's beyond, and she's beyond bearing children, and he's an old man. Doesn't, does it look right? Does this look like the, I mean, this isn't the young spry couple that has a glorious future. No, it's the old couple. And he says, no, the families of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed. Whoa, Okay. That's why Abraham has such great faith. He believed that God was going to do what he had promised to do. <laughs> do I need to talk about Ruth, a Moabitess? I mean, I could, we could go all throughout the scriptures and find insignificant people, insignificant events that ended up being monumental. But let's focus on our Lord. The shoot of Jesse. A twig. I mentioned Ruth. You can talk about David. But I need to spend time before we run out of time. I, I, I want us to focus for the time, for this moment on the Lord. How insignificant was our Lord's coming into this world? Now you're thinking, that's right, it was a manger birth. No, I, brother, I'm talking about even the conception in Mary's womb. That's when life begins in the womb, at conception. Jesus is in the womb of this poor young girl he had to go through, she had to go through all of the various things that every other Palestinian every other Jewish woman had to go through in a pregnancy the sickness the the morning sickness the uncomfortable all of these things all of the various circumstances that come the dangers that come with a pregnancy but our lord starts off Conceived in the womb in a time when the medical nearly isn't what it is today, right? Conceived in the womb, brought 
to full birth, and yes, in a stinky barn. They didn't have any money. They were insignificant. Even though they were of the line of David, they had no reputation at all. They were, well, they were nobodies, but not nobodies in the kingdom of God. From man's perspective, they were nobody. Nobody was going to reach out and do anything necessarily for them because there was no reward in it. There was nothing for the person doing the good deed. It was, if you did, you just did it because there was nothing that they could repay you with. They had nothing. And yet Jesus comes into the world born in a manger. Yes, hallowed by the angels, of course, he was the divine son of God, deservedly so. Yes, wise men coming and presenting gifts because they needed to be financed. I mean, they had to have money. But even in that, notice even in his early childhood, I mean, infant infancy, what does he have to do? His parents have to move from place to place because, well, people want to kill him. Think about that. Angel coming to Joseph, you got to get up, you got to go down to Egypt because, well, Herod's looking for him. He's going to kill the child. You can imagine, ladies, mothers, you'd be scared to death. You'd be scared to death. Get up, Joseph, get to go. Leave it. I got to pack up. Leave it. Let's go. It doesn't give the appearance of glory, does it? it? It doesn't give the appearance of power, of pomp, of pageantry. It doesn't give the appearance of there being something royal about Christ, uh, that he's somehow the royalty, the, the owner of heaven and earth, the creator. It doesn't give that, it doesn't, you don't perceive him as that. And yet there he is. And there he hung on a cross, hated, despised, and mocked of men, the son of glory. And you know, the, the, really, the, the tragedy, I mean, Jesus chose to come and lay down his life on behalf of sinners, but there is a temporal tragedy attached here. I mean, one of his followers betrayed him sold him for 30 pieces of silver. The, one of his other followers denied and cursed his name. And the rest fled. He had no one with him. That just, does that look, I mean, none of us would, would like, <laughs> that was horrible. But here's the, here's the king of the kingdom. I mean, the enemy thinks they have him. They pull out his beard. They force a crown on his head, but it's not a crown that you would want on yours. It had two-inch spikes, thorns, that they say could rip a man's flesh open easily. And they forced it upon his brow. 
They said, you want to be a king? We'll give you a crown. And they put him, nailed him up to the cross, and not just alone, not just in a solitary place, not in a place that was even designated for him. He was hung there with thieves. That's how insignificant they saw him. One thief mocked him and the other cried out for forgiveness. And Jesus forgave him. Even under all the pain of the cross, Jesus extended mercy to this thief and said, to this day, you will be with me in paradise. And after paying for those sins, Jesus gave up the ghost, so to speak. He gave up his spirit and he was buried in a grave only for three days because God raised him up again because he received his sacrifice for sin. And now he's exalted. But okay, that's our Lord, but what about the church? We see the church towering in the upper room. They're all afraid. They're all scared. They don't know what's going to happen. They thought, I mean, they crucified the leader of this band. I mean, they just nailed him to a cross. What will they do to us? And yet Jesus, before his ascension, he appears to them, right, and gives them commandments. Go do these. This is what I want you to do. I'm getting encouragement, but I want you to go. I want you to go make disciples of the nations because they are mine. And then he ascends up to heaven. And of course, there you see the book of Acts and you've got this fledgling church. You've got it filled with people that probably aren't the best kind of people, but they're God's people. And they find themselves praying a lot, studying the Bible a lot, preaching a lot, and fellowshipping a lot. And guess what God did with them? He grew their number. He grew their number to such an extent that even the nations and other people started going, hey, something, mm, they're turning this place upside down, the Jews and rabbis said. We've got to punish them. And that didn't work. Let me end it with, let me, let me bring that point to a close, brothers and sisters. Listen, the kingdom of God has beautified the world today. The beauty when I say beauty, I mean the architecture, the government, the best of men, the best of men and women have come through the expression of professing faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you not realize how much evil we would be living with today if Christianity had never birthed forth from the ground and turned into this glorious tree? Say what you want about slavery, and I'm not just talking about southern slavery, I'm talking about worldwide slavery. Christianity put it to death. It was Christians. And it will be Christians that continue the work of raising humanity to a level it ought to be in the image of God. And keep calling men to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, who is the king of this kingdom. Now, let me end this with you. What about your experience? The kingdom of God has been planted in your heart. How much has it grown, matured? You're not what you used to be, and you're not what you will be. Do you believe that? Do you believe that?
I'm not what I once was, but I'm certainly not what I'm going to be because the kingdom of God is growing in me. Now, I want to say something, brothers and sisters, because we have the, tent, we, 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 we love to dwell on big things, big churches, large numbers, famous scholars, grand activities. One preacher one gospel message and change the world. One mother's heart being converted in a non-Christian home begin teaching the children to love the Lord and to turn to Him. And those children raising their children and then their grandchildren. Brothers and sisters, it just keeps permeating and it keeps growing and it keeps blossoming into something beautiful and glorious. What an edifice it is. You come to church and you say, oh, we come to church every Sunday and the pastor's going to preach and we eat lunch and we do our thing. It, insignificant things end up being great things. Do not despise the insignificant or, let me say this word, mundane. Don't. The repetitious practice of righteousness will yield great gospel fruit. Don't give up. Keep doing what you're doing by faith and love for God and your neighbors. It doesn't matter your age either. You say, well, pastor, my glorious days, well, they're, I'm past those. Not at all. What a blessing it is to see these, all of us younger Christians and can, can see the testimony of this principle and truth in these older saints. Stay in the course. Walk in the walk. Give an encouragement. Don't give up. Yes, times are hard. Yes, life can be very difficult. But guess what? We're growing into a glorious tree as the kingdom of God. And people will come and find rest here. They will dwell here. And we will wait for the consummation of the kingdom. It's not insignificant. And you are not insignificant. And the smallest things you do are not insignificant. It's not you or me. We're not the ones who decide it's greatness. It's the God of heaven who decides how great this will be in the future. It's his choice. It's his plan. It's his prerogative to do whatever he wills with it. The question for us, are we, all, are we fine with the perception of being insignificant. Oh, we walk out there, the atheist may laugh. The unbeliever may laugh. You're trying to present the gospel to him. That's okay, present the gospel to him. God will deal with that person. The Holy Spirit will deal with that person. You know, hey, loving a, a, a hard-to-love husband, loving a hard-to-love wife, you just keep loving. God will work it out. He will work 
children? I mean, we all think children have a mind of their own, right? You love them. You keep pressing upon them the, the rules and the glory of the kingdom of Christ. And you let God work it out. Beloved, what I'm telling you here this morning that this parable gives us encouragement that the kingdom goes on and it will continue to roll on for generation after generation. We have the privilege of looking back at 2,000 years of glory at great times where the church was assaulted as it's being assaulted today, but to no avail, to no avail. It's a foolish thing to touch the apple of God's eye. No kingdom has been able to do it well and thrive afterwards. None. None. They have either come under the, under the bow of the gospel or they no longer exist. Beloved, take heart. Take encouragement this morning. Do not despise small beginnings. And that's the message I even have to my brothers in Christ Reformed Presbyterian Church. Do not despise small beginnings. Do not see these regular means of grace as insignificant because every time you do them by faith, there's a great blessing for you, but also as the people around you are watching. Oh, it's not insignificant. And it has a great impact on the people around you, whether you know it or not. I've, I've heard from parent after parent have issues with children and they leave home and maybe not under the best circumstances, but in time call and they say, I want to ask your forgiveness. I was wrong and you were right. I'm not pumping up any parent here, but I've heard even the words say, I knew you were right when you were saying it, but I was too stubborn and rebellious to listen. You keep pressing the rights of Christ lovingly and you let the Lord work out the future. Be faithful, be encouraged, be excited. Why? Because the kingdom is growing and will continue to grow until it's time and ready for Jesus to come back and receive his reward. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the, the message this morning, the blessing of this parable. Oh, such a small, insignificant parable. Two verses, yet with so much to learn from it. Thank you for teaching it to us. Oh, Lord, now give us the grace to live in accordance with it. Give us the courage, the strength, Lord. Let us not fear when evil men and women bluster and, and huff and puff. Let us not be afraid, for they fight a foolish fight. It's vain things that they put their hands to, and they will reap their reward. Now, Father, continue to bless us now as we fellowship in a very unique and special way with our Lord and Savior in the Supper, the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.